Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falconstein from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Chris, not Captain America, Evans. What? <laughs> and Virat Man About Town, Nehru. Yeah, me. So we have a big show planned. We have a lot to talk about. We are talking Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is in cinemas now. As is Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman, also in cinemas now. Yes, we are. And we will also be talking Rebel on the Rye, a film you might not see in cinemas, but we are still quite keen to talk about. But Yes, because it features someone. Virat's favourite. Yeah. Yeah, Virat's favourite actor, as we learnt last he week. Shall not, who shall not be named. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, um, unfortunately, I was outed as this person's biggest fan last week. And more Christopher on Plummer, you mean? <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Crystal, yes, and we'll more on that soon. But first, um, we've got a, a slightly different note. We have a lot of fun here at 2SCR. We love the station. We have an absolute ball presenting this program and bringing films to you, fine people. And we had the um, awards this week, and we actually got to do it our own horn, but we came away with one ourselves, which we're pretty thrilled about. Yes, we are the, apparently, drumroll. We are the, have the best team. The best team at 2SER, you heard yes. it here first. Which I know, it's weird. How can we be the best team when we basically fight about everything? Yeah, they do that as a fight show, right? We're achieving love through verbal violence. I, I think we've basically, other. you know, gone to the next step, which is taking fighting with teamwork. Yeah, I think maybe our fighting is like a martial art through which we can attain inner peace and thus we're team building or something. I don't know, but anyway, let's thanks. Or yeah, oh, oh, people have finally realized the only way men can bond is through verbal sparring. Ooh, so, yeah. So, something like that. But look, i got to say on a serious Truth note, bombs. There, there, there is no I in team, but there is a Chris and a Virat in team. There's also an I <laughs> in Chris and Virat, and you guys are absolutely great. So There's, There is also an E. Uh, not an, there's no I in Glenn. No, there isn't. Um, but there is... In Falkenstein. Len. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that we should There's all a... express our heartfelt thanks to Len yeah. in Glen tonight. Yes. Yeah. That was my tribute to you. Yeah. If Len's out there. And so. teamwork. No worries. <laughs> and teamwork. Um, but so, uh, yeah, yeah thanks you... for 2 SER for letting us talk about film and, and ramble about nonsense like this every week and then give us an award for it. And basically, not just an award, for being the absolute best. That means a lot, because now I know I am the absolute best. Before, I just <laughs> believed, but right. now I have evidence to back this up, which is great. So this is going on the resume, is, uh, I guess, what this introduction and sums up. I think to Back to yeah. film. Back to film. Thank you, 2SCR. Back to film. The first film we are talking about is Killing of a Sacred Deer by Yogos Lanthimos, the director of The Lobster. It stars the Cole Kidman, Colin Farrell, Barry Keown, who was in Dunkirk earlier this year, and additionally, Alicia Silverstone in a small role. Now, there's been a lot of hype for this film. A lot of critics have been buzzing about it, raving about it. I have to disagree. This was one of my least favorite films of the entire year year. Now, this is a film which moves into myth and mythos and tries to tell, work with a lot of great Greek archetypes and ideas via metaphor. Um, certainly, the director has been heralded as this modern champion of these sorts of stories, and I feel this was done to the great sacrifice of a lot of the drama in the film. I did not enjoy it so much. Uh, music was not used as it was clearly intended. Um, I did appreciate that the actors got to use their natural accents, but that's just about the my favorite thing about the film. Guys, what did we think of Killing of a Sacred Deer? Way, way, way too long and undisciplined for starters. I feel like most films I've been watching lately feel really undisciplined. Maybe, like, may, I don't know, to take a guess, it's like TV is taking off and people are trying to differentiate themselves from the, the trend of prestige TV by making their movies way too long 
indulging in what cinema allows you to do. I feel we should just clarify exactly what Killing of a Sacred Deer is about. Yeah, that would yeah, be a good first step. That would be fair. So essentially it is about a successful doctor and his partner, uh, Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman, and uh, about a relationship that Colin Farrell's character has with a young man and the implications this has for his family. Uh, it leads to him having to make a number of awful decisions that no father should have to make and more significantly us and him to question our relationship and our understanding of both the natural and the supernatural. Yes, and Lanthimos uh, is has been obsessed with the Greek mythos and Greek tragedy for quite some time, and here he takes his obsession to the next level by basically adapting Antigone for the modern day. So if you know how Antigone went and that kind of progression of narrative, you would be very happy to find why killing takes its narrative, though I think the execution of that was a bit suspect. No, I enjoy Antigone. It's one of the best Greek tragedies. Certainly there was an excellent production earlier in this year just across the road at the Seymour Center. But that has drama. It has character arcs. It has the does not have the ex machina moments that many of those tragedies do. And this did have many. And I in drama you expect some great interplay between the characters, some great dialogue. But the dialogue, it was full of non sequiturs, it was lax day school, it was very poorly written in parts. Okay. Um Lanthimos is doing this by design. Wait for it. I'm not defending him. Okay. He, I think he's trying to go for some kind of um, theater of the absurd. And I think also parody of the way that bourgeois people interact with each other, because the dialogue in this is extremely stilted. It's lacking any degree of introspection. It's a bunch of people speaking in a highly um, technical kind of stilted way about things like their watches or what they're cooking or chores around the house or their iPod, you know, when there's this crazy dramatic situation going on, um, no one, they, they seem like unemotional robots. And I think, yeah, he's, you need to, to enjoy this film, you need to vibe with that kind of abstracted style of dialogue. But I think it's really to the film's detriment that Lanthimos has, cha- has chosen this style. At, in the early stages of the film, for the first hour, I, I, with, I had some problems, but I quite enjoyed um, for the you know that took on a, a mostly comedy driven style, and so I could go with the weird way of talking because it is kind of funny at times. But the problem is that the film, as it goes on, goes into some really heavy dramatic territory, and for me, all of that drama fell flat because you can't empathize with the emotions of heavy drama when the characters are held at that kind of remove and rendered as clearly inhuman. You know, they don't talk or act like humans, and then we have to feel for the emotions we're going through, and we can't. It's like he's holding us up to hate these characters, and then we hate them. Fair enough. That's not interesting to me. It, and it just feels like a kind of ugly, almost torture porn kind of movie in the in the latter stages because of that. And interesting uh, what Lanthimos is trying to achieve through this portrayal, because I'm not sure what the actual eventual goal of this is, because the kind of character portrayal, especially Colin Farrell's emotionally detached delivery of dialogue and very kind of monotonous delivery is reminiscent of The Lobster, which yeah. came out and it's, it's not re- too long ago, which was a much better movie. Also of his Greek films, Alps and Dogtooth. He's made this, he's made this his trademark, basically. E- exactly. But also at the same time, uh, here, what was needed was some kind of emotional beat yeah. that you could connect with. Yeah. And there was nothing there. And because everyone in this movie, especially Farrell's family, you know, everyone speaks in this kind of weird fashion, when... Uh, this young person who's supposedly, you know... He's meant to be like a, a, a psychopath, but he speaks in the same way as all the exactly. rest of the characters. So he, he doesn't feel like he's trying to 
bring about some kind of chaos in the people's lives because he matches just, the rest of the time yeah, of the film. So you're just very confused as to whether this person is supposed to fit right in, in this world or is this person actually somewhat menacing? No, there's no great way to distinguish between characters. Colin Farrell was absolutely a very similar and very uh, mopey character as he was in The Lobster. Nicole Kimmel, I have to give it to, she is always excellent. She's one of the finest actors, not just working today, but in Australia. And she was absolutely superb in this film. Um, my biggest concern, though, in the entire feature was the way the ending played out. And we're not going to talk about what happened in the ending, but this is one of those films where they try to get all the dramatic action to move to a set piece, which the director clearly had in mind, maybe even envisioned as one of the earliest right, aspects right. and key aspects of the film. The issue is statements the characters make, actions they take, in no way, even in the thwarted, strange logic of this film, logically lead up to what is the ultimate denouement. And it no, is shocking, but it makes absolutely no sense. It would be compelling if he had found a way to make it work, but I'm afraid he didn't. There's, yeah. The only good thing about it is, I would say, is the cameo by Alicia Silverstone, who completely was a scene stealer, and in a way, the makeover that happened, because you don't imagine Alicia Silverstone in this kind of role, and I was actually taken aback pleasantly. I was like, I'm like I'm, I was like, oh my god, is that Alicia Silverstone? She um, should have had a bigger role in this film. Yes, she definitely should have. Her character is an exemplar of what's wrong with the film, because it's this kind of just adjunct that it suggests some interesting ideas and direct and roads the film could have gone down, but instead her character's never seen again. But I think this movie has a big problem in the way it develops. As I was saying before, it sort of starts off as a weird comedy, and then about an hour into it, it, suge- it suggests its um, strange twist that we haven't gone into for the sake of avoiding spoilers. My biggest uh, problem was this film was trying too hard to be Michael Haneke. It's very Michael Haneke, yeah. But the problem is Criticism of you the don't be Michael Haneke except if you are Michael yeah. Haneke. Okay, so the, <laughs> the problem is, is that eventually this movie just runs out of ideas. It transitions from being a weird comedy, then it introduces this absurd premise which it treats with, you know, which, as dark comedy for a while. Then it settles into serious drama that we can't get into because every character has held it remove. Like, I, I was thinking, what's the point of this movie? Because the characters are set up as people that we hate, right? Because of the way that they talk, we're clearly not meant to empathize or, or feel anything that they feel. And then it tortures them. And then and then it makes us hate them more in the drama that plays out. So I'm thinking, like, what's the point? It's kind of like um, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, you will hate these characters. You hate the characters at the beginning. It the, the movie makes them do things to make you hate them more. All right. Like, it doesn't further or advance any kind of point. And then it just... It's interesting the way that it's blending dark comedy and absurdism, but then it just completely runs out of ideas and just repeats kind of variations of Colin Farrell doesn't know what to do, doesn't know how to deal with this scenario, to diminishing returns until the ending just comes about. Like, it doesn't develop up to that. That is how I would describe this movie, diminishing returns. And the one thing I will say is anyone who watches a lot of these types of films recognize the shot that is not infrequent throughout this movie, where you have, it's a closed shot, one angle, number of people moving, shuffling in the frame, and it's supposed to be something profound and funny, and it is in some films, certainly Hannah Kay has achieved that great effect, but it wasn't here. Yeah, um, I'll, I'd like to say a f- yeah, what I is notable and interesting and good about the movie, which for me is the aesthetic. It's very, very highly reminiscent of a few Kubrick films, mostly Eyes Wide Shut and um, The Shining. It tries to scare you with similar kind of camera movements and compositions and use of atonal sound as The Shining does. But the difference between Kubrick's mastery that this movie is inviting comparisons to and what Lanthimos is able to achieve is that Kubrick sets up this kind of style and then finds ways to shock you and disrupt you within it. Whereas 
Lanthimos, much as he does with the narrative, simply repeats what he's established stylistically in the first half of the movie ad nauseum to diminishing returns in the second half. Essentially, it's a movie about a foregone conclusion that doesn't do anything to disrupt the path to that foregone conclusion past maybe the midpoint. And thus, it just feels like a pointless exercise and the ending lands with a thud. Yes, it does. Killing of a Sacred Deer is in cinemas now. We'll be back shortly talking about Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. Stay tuned. And that was Wonder Woman, because we are talking about the latest film in cinemas, the third film this year to feature Wonder Woman in a major role, in a sense, Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. Women. This, women, Marston and the Wonder Women. And the exactly. Wonder Woman. A very important distinction. Very yeah. important. So yes, as we will go on to discuss. Uh, this film stars Rebecca Hall, the always excellent Rebecca Hall, Luke Evans, and Australia's Bella Heathcote. It is based on the true story of William Moulton Marston, who invented the lie detector and also came up with the Wonder Woman cloak. It goes into the character's origins and his views and his personal life and what at the time was very controversial. Um, I enjoyed this film a lot. I would recommend it over Justice League if, on terms of DC history. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Right? Yeah, honestly. <laughs> it's got a great cast. We're all, everyone, I think we're all big fans of Rebecca Hall. This, it's an excellent drama in many senses. It did have a lot of drawbacks, but I'm looking forward to getting the discussion going on this latest Wonder Woman flick. Yeah, what I would say definitely is that we may be ready for Wonder Woman, but we are definitely not ready for a proper biopic of the man or the person behind the creation of Wonder Woman. Uh, because he was supposedly, in many senses, ahead of his time when he lived. And from the studio treatment of his life, he still remains ahead of his time even today. He's a, Yeah, he's definitely ahead of what this film was trying to do in its portrayal of him, which seems very, in some ways, behind, you know, uh, hasn't caught up to date with the values of this guy, who's a really interesting character. It, it's interesting, you know, and it really hit me when I was watching the movie because we pretend... Or we like to think of ourselves, at least I do, that, you know, I'm a progressive kind of person on some level. And yet, uh, watching the movie, I was like, oh, I can see why they didn't go, uh, you know, take that final step, because that would have definitely irked some people. So it's interesting that even though we're talking about a lot of very progressive ideas, it never fully commits to any of them. And that's disappointing, but also, in some senses, deep down, I really understood why they didn't do that. I have to agree. It's a film which, in terms of relationship dynamic and a polyamorous relationship dynamic, is very interesting in terms of how you go yeah. into the relationship between these we individuals. Explain what it's about, right? Yes, we so, should. Little more. <laughs> so basically, it's about Professor Marston, who is at which college was he at? Oh, it was a English. He's at some kind of college. He's a university America. professor. He's a university professor. Know, yeah. As his his wife Elizabeth. Yes. Oh, she, yeah. Played by Rebecca Hall. Played by Rebecca Hall. He's um he Professor Marston is played by Luke Evans, and. To, yes, together they are work. He has a theory about dominance and submission, the disc theory, which for you know got some traction in psychology for a while back then, and is also developing with his wife the lie detector test. They take on Olive, who is a assistant who they basically both fall in love with. Essentially, yes. And you have jumped on two elements that alone would make part of separately 
two great films, one about the invention of the lie detector and one about the invention of Wonder Woman. And the first roughly third of the film was very much about the lie detector, and it's fascinating. And yep. then they move not too seamlessly into Wonder Woman. Now, these are two entirely separate stories, which, while both interesting, are not thematically linked and are certainly not thematically linked in the movie. I was very interested in the sections of Wonder Woman. I was very interested in sections of the lie detector. I was very interested in their relationship. But uh, together, they try to tell a very large story in a very big canvas, and you can't really get all that across in a two-hour film. I think I'll, I'll give the film some credit on this. I think they did a pretty decent job compared to a lot of biopics in showing how all of these influences come together to inspire the creation of this character. You know, compared to the way that the inspiration behind uh, artworks has been depicted in biopics, like I, I was talking to you guys earlier about the example of Hit the Road Jack being dreamt up in Ray, which is just shockingly awful. This movie does it in quite a subtle way showing how his interest in BDSM and his interest in the light, you know, his development of the lie detector and his being surrounded by very strong feminist women who influence his viewpoints all kind of roll together into a melting pot and Wonder Woman is born. It didn't overplay that aspect except for one one kind of one scene towards the yeah, end. Yeah, we were talking about this. There's a lot of very overly symbolic moments in the film, and there is this flash aha moment where he comes up, very clearly comes up with the idea. And yes, this is a dramatic moment. It has a very strong dramatic flourish. But the moments leading up to this, um, t- while the rest of the script is very well staged, very well you know punctuated, left uh, like a little bit wanting. It was still yep. fascinating, and surely it's going to be part of every trailer, every promotional piece of the film. Look, but it's, it's a, a dramatic it, flourish. It did not work so well. Basically, he sees someone as Wonder Woman, and it's like he. She's literally in the Wonder Woman costume, and yet without giving anything away, it yeah, it's overplaying the hand a little bit. Uh, still, at the same time, what I found refreshing was that how it handled BDSM relationships to it's begin with. It's very sex positive. Yes, uh, and that's something which you often don't see, which is why I was slightly disappointed that it didn't fully commit to its own message in some senses. But at the same time, uh, you could just see how psychologically this kind of interdimensional and these character relationships affect each other, which also lead to some extremely safe options. Yeah, look, it's a safe movie in so many ways. It The problem with this film, the, the largest problem for me, is that it's may, it's kind of, you know, like the dandy matinee, take your grandma style, where, you know, everything's got this soft, tinkly piano and and gently strumming orchestra in the background and everything's shot in a kind of conventionally pretty but not that interesting way and everybody's you know people no one really gets into intense yelling at each other but they look mildly like their their brows furrow a bit in the intense scenes it's one of those movies like take your grandma to it which that's you know it's very watered down and safe which doesn't feel like to me like it's doing justice to the intensity and the unusual nature of this relationship. It's taking something very strange and um, very interesting and trying to smother it, you know, like massage it down so that it can fit into a conventional biopic format. I don't think that does justice to the psychology behind this relationship. I agree. But also at the same time, and we were discussing this, Chris, there is something more insidious happening. Because oh, yeah, yeah. Don't steal my point. Okay, go for it, Chris. <laughs> yeah, basically, it's a movie about a polyamorous relationship between the two professors and this woman. And it's Olive, their, their teaching assistant, who later comes to live with them. And it's made clear that she's in love with both of them, and they all have sex with each other. In fact, she, she gives birth to Professor Marston's children. However... The mo- in the depiction of, of the polyamorous relationship, it never 
once shows her kissing or getting it on or anything with Marston. It's always shown, you know, any affection is only exclusively shown between the two women, even though this is a situation where everyone's getting involved. And given that this is a movie about society being prudes and not being ready to accept the nature of this relationship, and the movie is so discouraging of it, it seems like the filmmakers weren't ready to go up against people's prejudice either because i feel i'm not sure about the reasoning behind this decision it's certainly curious but to me it feels like they think that the audience might be weirded out by this older man with this younger woman or might feel like it's it's an example of male power you know being exploited in the way that they wouldn't when they see the two women but either way it felt kind of insidious to undermine the point of the, the fact that this really is a polyamorous relationship where everyone's equally involved and this had a really serious implications for how the characters were depicted too, because you have three very different characters who fill three very different functions. Luke Evans was an expository machine, he just exposition dumps all over the place, yep. including some very ham-handed ham- flashbacks. You had the Bella Heathcote character, who was very much an ingenue and was very much their foil, but didn't uh, have as much agency as any of the other characters, whereas you have the Rebecca Hall character, who was the emotional crux of the film, and she is always excellent. She was superb. She was it meant a lot of this fell on her shoulders, yep. but you did not have an equal character to between these three. So it was an excellent idea. I wish it had been better executed. I think a lot of that comes back to this screenplay which saw these characters as three entirely separate archetypes. It's more interesting because picking up on Chris's point, that how we see men in today's society that we are okay with two women having certain sexual relations but as soon as a man comes into the picture we suddenly fall back into very, very conservatively safe territory. Yeah, it's fascinating that the movie's about this subject, yet it shied away from depicting that. Yeah, but at the same time, because it's interesting to note, because Wonder Woman today is depicted as this sort of female sex-positive role model, yet Marston originally intended it to be a male sort of role model, you know, for men to, yeah, look, for up men to, to look up to women. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And he's the guy who, it goes as far as him, he's the guy who introduces the BDSM element to this relationship, yet we don't see him ever taking part in BDSM. It's all, all subjugated to his wife. It's mostly suggestive, as are many moments of the film which you've alluded yeah, to, yeah. which was disappointing. I still think it's interesting. I still think it's, fans look, of DC should seek it out. The thing about this movie is it's a fascinating story. Like This is such a curious tale about um, sexuality and you know this, this point in history. It touches on so many things, like the politics of America during the war, um, comic books. It, yeah, it, it's such a great story. But it's let down by just being very, very safe, conventional biopic filmmaking. Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman is in cinemas. Now I actually saw it as part of a Dendi matinee as it happens. Um, so, I. <laughs> <laughs> so the last film we are talking about is Rebel in the Rye, which is the biopic of J.D. Salinger starring Nicholas Holt. It depicts his struggling early years as a writer before he wrote Catcher in the Rye and his relationship with his college professor, played by Kevin Spacey, because Christopher Plummer was only agreed to be recast in one movie. And yes, as was sus, we have the fan of at least biggest fan of at least one of the biggest actors fan on, in this on movie, Kevin Spacey on Film Fight Club, Virat Nehru. <laughs> you mean the biggest fan of J.D. Salinger? Thank you. Oh yes, we are both. We were discussing this after screen. We are both massive fans of the novel, and as with every literary biopic, they try to weed in the themes and say, "Here's the moment where he was inspired. Aha! Here's where he got this moment to write Holden Caulfield." Can I just ask? Did they touch on anything else like Franny and Zoe or? 
No. It, it, really? It, 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 they touch ridiculous. on his short stories. It's ridiculous. It's, but it's <laughs> he, all, his other work's actually great. They, they touch yeah, it, but it's, I, it's I a, mean, uh, Salinger himself admitted that uh, he had become to come to hate Catcher in the Rye because of the notoriety and the fame that it got, and he right. considered that's, it his sort of fluff fiction. That's just how I mean, you know that this isn't going to be a serious movie without me having seen it. Just the fact that they only talk about the the, the story that everybody knows and not the other fascinating work that this guy wrote. I love Catcher in the Rye, but like, come on. They talk about it in abstract, as in him trying to struggling to get published. And this is the fascinating part of the movie, which actually doesn't deal with Catcher in the Rye. His early years trying to be a writer, what that means. And it's a cathartic biopic for anyone who loves writing and wants to be a writer. And then about halfway through, it switches tack to about five stories. His war years, his post-war years, his spiritual awakening, his isolation, his romantic encounters. And this is way, way too much for a second, third act of a movie. Yeah, look, the film is trying to answer the central question which uh, most people had in their minds when they think of Yeti Salinger is, why did he become a recluse? You know, why did someone who wrote such a famous novel suddenly decide to disappear and not give any interviews, basically become the next Thomas... Thomas Pynchon. Oh, Thomas Pynchon, yeah. Lots of people did this, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So it's trying to answer that question and a lot of this hinges upon how the war changed him in this PTSD sort of dynamic, except... The second half of the film, it, it doesn't really do anything. It's trying to somehow present Salinger as basically a manifestation of Holden Caulfield, that he was Holden Caulfield, and he got so sick of society and basically got so bitter that he gave up on everything and became a recluse and discovered many ways, suspect ways of dealing with his PTSD, which is also, you know, doing some Indian meditation techniques and stuff like that. And by the way, had the worst worst Indian sort of, you know, exotic cameo of uh, using yoga and meditation techniques in a Western film in recent memory that I can think of. To give you an idea, the guy who plays uh, his spiritual advisor is Bernard White, who plays uh, the role of the spiritual advisor in one of my favorite series, Silicon Valley. It's not, the series is not, that that section is not particularly hand well. But just jumping back to what you're talking about, how they worked in Catcher in the Rye, there were times when, as I said, there were a few very aha moments. There was one moment where I really did enjoy it. There's a key sequence in Catcher in the Rye involving actually his English high school professor, which is very hotly debated. I prefer the more innocent interpretation of this. Many others would disagree. But there is a sequence at the end of this film where they really go into a lot of detail regarding the sequence and how that is mirrored in his relationship with one particular character who I'm sure and one particular actor who's a particular character as I'm sure we all know I think a lot of the interpretations around the scene will be uh, influenced by a lot of discussions that are happening around that character as well as actor as well this film um, many people may not end up seeing this film may not get much of a run because of the very serious allegations that have come up recently but um, it is still a, in many respects a very interesting and very powerful film yeah you, you're right because it's interesting the film makes Whit Burnett, uh, Salinger's teacher in his college years, a very major character in the movie, whereas in his actual life, he didn't really have that much of an influence. He was just there for a couple of years. Uh, so just the fact that, and Whit Burnett's character is played by he who must not be named, uh, you know, uh, whom I'm not so big a fan of, but come on, I am kind of a fan of, because he was, let's admit it, he is and was still, a great actor. still the best part of the, the movie. But I guess that's not the point at this time. No, 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 actually, no, this <laughs> no, is a good point. still the best part of the movie, yeah. He is he, very good in this film. I read, I read he was actually also the best part of All the Money in the World from the people who got to see early screenings of it. Yeah, just on this, we haven't really discussed it, but as many people will know, um, Kevin Spacey had a role in All the Money in the World as the richest man in the world, which has since been recast and reshot with Christopher Plummer. There are some people who have seen both versions 
versions. I'm very curious to see how they do compare. Yeah. But we will see a December 20 release of All the Money in the World with Christopher Plummer, not Kevin Spacey. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be yeah. interesting. It's interesting. And uh, so, so to talk about Spacey in this movie, he actually is really interesting and actually the best part of the film. Because whenever he's on screen and the first half of the film is really when you're into it. Because the early half of Salinger's life is something that I don't think you would really thought would make for much, you know, interesting drama. But, you know, because Salinger's life is so, such a broad canvas. You know, there's the war, what happened before it, before, after it. So you're like, well, you know, this sort of early roaring 20s kind of feel, this feels very great Gatsby-esque. But yeah, that's the best part of the movie. And because after that, it all derails into mopey, he feels like a Morrissey biopic after writing it. It's like, <laughs> I am sitting here writing furiously about things that are important in the world. So yeah. basically, the best Catcher in the Rye movie is still Conspiracy Theory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And we, we may one day see a Catcher in the Rye film. Uh, famously, he never released the rights, as discussed in this film. But one day, we may see an adaptation. I don't know if you I know, want to, but uh, keep, we don't know. Keeping up with the trend of mentioning him, he always has to be mentioned in Film Fight Club. Already has been once tonight. I read that Terrence Malick tried to get it made <laughs> once. Seriously. Uh, he, he tried to make Catcher in the Rye. That would have been interesting. Have, that, have any of us seen, uh, like, in him in person has anyone seen Terrence Malick or is he does ghost? he actually exist oh, is yeah. he just an abstract time, concept for the first time um, maybe like ever he did a he did Q&A's in the last year I think he's oh he's retre- he's coming out of, of the reclusiveness which yeah. Salinger never did yeah yeah well, there we go that, you heard it first guys here at Film Fight Club I, I still don't believe he's a real pose just an amalgamation of like very serious art house folk <laughs> um, I, I think we're the ones who basically the biggest fans. We are keeping the Malik cult alive. Right, right. So, so from the Malik cult, that was Revel of the Rye. Uh, we will be back next week. Uh, and a couple of things that are happening around town. The Night of Horror and Fantastic Planet Film Festival opens tonight at Dendy Newtown and screens throughout the week. I'm heading there tonight. It should be fascinating. There are also a number of excellent screenings at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. I think it's Dog Day Afternoon on Midnight Cowboy. No, it's Midnight Cowboy's been Dog Day Afternoon or something. Like uh, Some really good 70s films. Well, they're both showing at Art Gallery of New South Wales. Sundays and, and Wednesday nights. They're both excellent and worth seeing and we have to say goodbye to Virat Virat's off to India to find the best Bollywood films to bring back to us so Virat have a wonderful trip and time thank you thank you I wish I'd come back with a good English accent and we'll be back this has been Film Fight Club Good night. night